This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. It's Wednesday, February 27th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show... J. Stephen O'Malley joins us to talk about all things Methodist. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with my co-host and our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Good afternoon. Hello, Mark. Not much to say that we haven't said in the previous sessions. It's winter still, and we're waiting for spring. Yes, especially you. Counting down the days, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. So tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about with and with whom. Well, with whom in particular is J. Stephen O'Malley. He is the John T. Siemens Professor of Methodist Holiness History at Asbury Theological Seminary. And among his many uh, works, the one that plays the most uh, will play the most part in our talk today, in the spring and summer of 2018, uh, he completed, and he's just finished the manuscript, a sabbatical project on the origin of the Wesleyan theological vision for Christian globalization and the pursuit of Pentecost in early pietist revivalism. And this is something we want to just get a, a sense on, is not only the, the movement, the Wesleyan and Methodist movement in the U.S., but maybe even worldwide, because I don't think people recognize its global nature. So welcome, Dr. O'Malley. Good morning. Good afternoon, I, mean, I should say. So... This name of this project that you completed is almost 20 words, I want to say. <laughs> did you come up with the title? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, very cool. As Mark suggested, it's very likely that we will be asking you quite a bit of questions based on that recent research. So I'm glad that you were able to join us today and bring that level of expertise. I think most of our listeners at this point should know kind of a little bit about what we're talking about. But In case they have not been paying attention, for the past four days, the General Conference of the United Methodist Church has been in a special session to receive and act on a report from the Commission of the Way Forward, which reexamines paragraphs in the Methodist rulebook called the Book of Discipline concerning human sexuality. Currently, the Book of Discipline bars gays and lesbian members from ordination and marriage, which has caused an increasing divide in the church. So the commission included three different plans for moving forward. There was a plan called the One Church Plan, which would allow individual churches and regional annual conferences to decide whether to ordain and marry LGBTQ members. There's the traditional plan, which would strengthen enforcement of current language regarding LGBTQ people in the denomination's rulebook. And there is the Connectional Conference Plan, which would reorganize United Methodist churches by conferences based on their LGBTQ policy rather than by geography. The decision of the special session, which is likely happening as we record this episode, could change the faith of Methodism and may have broad global consequences. The UMC has about 7 million lay members in the U.S. and 5.5 million overseas, and they operate in more than 130 countries. It traces its beginnings back to the Great Awakening preachers, John and Charles Wesley. So this week on Quick to Listen, we want to explore the history of this tradition and denomination and learn what makes it unique today. All right, Mark, time for a gut check. I don't know if church meetings are something that provoke an emotional reaction from you, but tell us if they do. They do. Okay. I've been 
uh, involved in uh, mainline Christianity. I was ordained in the Presbyterian Church, mainline Presbyterian Church, spent a number of years in the Episcopal Church, and this is like a deja vu, as they say, deja vu all over again, uh, because when I was part of each of those uh, denominations, they were wrestling over this same issue, you know, some decades earlier. So part of me goes, I understand the tension and the anxiety that's produced in the churches by the, this, this topic and having meetings like this, and it just brings back those tense feelings. Mm. <laughs> so it's a super personal connection. Then. Yeah, yeah, it just reminds me of just of a lot of the pain that uh, a lot of us have experienced having to debate this issue other times. It seems to be my cross to bear that I was uh, involved in each dynamic denomination that was wrestling about these things. So there you go. Just in other words, you should be feeling happy that you didn't join the Methodist Church after well, there you left you go. the Episcopal <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm also interested, I think the Methodists, as we'll get into, have a unique polity here that bears on this conversation in a way that's different than other American denominations. So I'll be uh, anxious to have us talk about that. You know, you mentioned different denominations which have split over this particular issue in recent years. And I guess I was a little bit surprised that the Methodists hadn't yet. So I don't know if that's really a gut check, but I was a little bit confused about where this denomination stood on this issue, what had been happening. It's not a denomination that I follow closely, nor have very many, I guess, Christian friends who are part of the Methodist Church. And so I was actually excited to do this podcast today to fill in a lot of the holes that I have in my own knowledge about this. And maybe I will have a more emotional reaction after learning all this information. All right. So, Dr. O'Malley, time to hit you with some questions. Let's begin by talking about how old the particular denomination, the United Methodist Church, is. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about its origins. Our church has its 50th anniversary in 1968 to 2000. 18. So we've just passed the 50-year mark as a United Methodist Church. We originated with the Methodist Episcopal Church. It was organized in 1784 in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, under the leadership of Francis Asbury, who became its first ordained pastor and then bishop. It also became joined with uh, various branches over the years in union to create the Methodist Church, as it came to be known by 1968, Union of uh, Former South and North Groups, Methodist Protestant Groups. But then uh, we had, uh, in addition to that, in 1968, the union with the Evangelical United Brethren Church. I was a ordained minister of that denomination at that time, had been ordained just a year prior to the union in 1968. And we represented in itself a uh, coming together of two different streams of German-American revival Christianity that had its roots in German pietism and among uh, immigrants to this country in the colonial period and into the 19th century. The two branches of that uh, tradition represented first the uh, United Brethren in Christ, which dated back to about 1767, which was even before the first Methodist preaching occurred in this country under the leadership of two men, uh, Philip William Otterbein, who came as a German Reformed missionary to the colonial colony of uh, Maryland in 1752, uh, serving in Baltimore, the church there that's still honored by his name. He's buried by that church in the harbor of Baltimore, near where the War of 1812 uh, conflict occurred. And so it has some historic locations. 
and he uh, served with a Mennonite, a layman, and a lay bishop, as they have it, by the name of Martin Bain, uh, who together joined hands in a fellowship uh, by that name in that early year uh, as a result of a Pentecost-based revival that occurred in a barn meeting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. A Pentecost before Pentecost, huh? Yes. Uh, it was on a Pentecost Sunday that uh, what was called a big meeting, a Grosse was held, which was a forerunner to the camp meetings that came in the 19th century in the places like Cane Ridge in the in the uh, middle of the country. This was in the Northeast among the German immigrants, and they were holding these kinds of meetings quite early as a, a result of uh, informal meetings that uh, came as a spinoff of the uh, awakening that originated among the English-speaking colonists through George Whitfield and others in the colonies. They were meeting on this occasion with a man by the name of Bain who was giving his account of his new birth when Otterbein happened to be in the audience and exclaimed publicly and embracing him that, Biozine uh, Bruder, we are brethren. And this was a remarkable moment of reconciliation between two long streams of European Protestantism had gone unreconciled now for probably over, by that time, over two centuries. Because since the 16th century, the forerunners of the Mennonites, who had been Anabaptists, had been persecuted, had been persecuted for their mode of baptism primarily, and their separation from state church uh, authority by all other forms of organized Christianity, official Christianity. And so here you had a representative of the official state church Christianity in the form of Otterbein, a German Reform missionary, uh, embracing and affirming the witness of an Anabaptist descent, of uh, Anabaptist descent of Mennonite. And what was important in, in that moment to them was not their denominational affiliations, which had long been antagonistic to one another, but it was their common affirmation of the new birth in Christ as a moment of the Spirit's visitation and baptism upon them. So this uh, launched a long-term relationship between these two traditions through these leaders, and in fact, by 1800, they organized them, their movement as a uh, unpartisan, which meant that they didn't want to become a narrowly exclusive denomination, but a broad one that would embrace all those who sought to have unity in the Lordship of Jesus Christ through the experience of the new birth through the Holy Spirit. And uh, it would be envisioned as a way of overcoming the hostilities and divisions within the various sects and church groups that then, that then uh, were prominent in the middle colonies, the German-speaking areas, which were quite numerous with that language in use uh, in Pennsylvania and Maryland, western New York State and the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and all that area represented uh, tens of thousands of German speakers. So uh, it uh, filled a void that needed to be filled, probably because the English-speaking colonies had been experiencing renewal through the work of, of uh, Edwards and the awakening among the New Englanders and then later with Wesley and the Methodists. So this uh, enabled them to be involved in this larger movement of, of awakening that had been moving across the globe from Europe to America in the early 18th century. So it sounds like a lot of, a lot of Methodist history is, is about not only uh, revivals and that sort of thing, but also bringing Christians of various denominations together in these events. Right. 
And the other part of that, the union was with the uh, the United Brethren had been joined themselves with the Evangelical Association, later the Evangelical Church, it was called, of North America, which had its origins also in that early period of around 1800 under the leadership of a Lutheran layman by the name of Jacob Albright, who had been a Revolutionary War soldier, veteran, and converted afterwards through a profound experience of spiritual crisis in his own and in his family life. And he he came spontaneously to own this uh, new gift of salvation and to share it with his neighbors. And uh, he began to travel and continue that work spontaneously with no formal backing from any church tradition. And uh, out of that, and he, he dies rather soon in the course of the early years of that ministry. And uh, you would think that would have been the end of it, but uh, those who were converted under his leadership organized themselves after his death into a movement that continued to bear witness. Their particular distinctive had to do with bringing some of the Methodist forms of polity and uh, emphasis upon Christian perfection, the fullness of the Spirit and the life of the Christian, uh, into expression among the German-Americans. And uh, their movement uh, in the 19th century led to a return to their German fatherland and the establishment of a strong work in Europe, which has continued to this day. So those two groups joined as the EUB in 1946, and they had a 21-year history before the Union with Methodists in 1968. So we're a broad family today that includes background not only of the Anglican heritage of John Wesley, but the Lutheran heritage of Jacob Albright, the Evangelical Church, and the German Reformed and Mennonite uh, branches, which represent the extremes of the Radical and the Magisterial Reformation process coming together through the United Brethren in Christ. So that's a broad base. Just quickly for our listeners, where did the word Methodist come from? John Wesley was called a Methodist going back to his pre-conversion period as a term of criticism by his early observers of the movement for establishing a a holy club among uh, his friends and associates, a very disciplined lifestyle of personal devotion based upon uh, what they call their general rules that came to be identified in the course of Methodist history. The emphasis was upon those who were seeking to be saved from their sins and flee the wrath to come would uh, join together and covenant to do all things good for God and for their fellow brothers and sisters, avoid all evil, and attend the ordinances of God, which would have been the Anglican services of worship. So those three rules basically define or the method of this initial group of followers of Wesley, looking from a distance as being Methodistic, being a, a strict and a kind of a Protestant form of monasticism, if you will. But it later took on a, a, a different flavor after the conversion that Wesley experienced at Aldersgate, where he began to have a deep sense of love and forgiveness for his enemies and a desire to share the gospel with all. So it was not a revival movement until after that uh, occurred, and that occurred in the context of him making connection with continental renewal and pietist groups such as the Moravians, who had been manifestors of that awakening on the continent to him in the course of his early travels, when his, particularly his trip from England to Georgia, where he first encountered signs of that awakening uh, uh, through the Moravians there on board the ship. Well, I can, I can definitely say I'm having a gut reaction now. My gut check is, wow, 
<laughs> that is an extremely fascinating, I don't know, Christian family tree that goes into Methodism. I'm so glad that you laid it out, but I definitely will say that I have probably more questions than I had earlier. We won't get into all of them. Don't worry, everybody. But that was a lot. Also, it just made me think that the United Methodist Church today, I guess, feels very American. This whole idea of, you know, on our, our like motto, what is like E pluribus boom. E pluribus <laughs> Thank you. Right. From many into one. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I get that sense when you're talking about all the different things that fed into this and, you know, how that is all kind of what we see in modern day Methodism. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? Well, we have been a originally uh, we were called on one side of our union, uh, an unpartisan group, which meant that we were to be together in Christ in the midst of our individual differences, but that we would share all things through him in common. Uh, and from the Methodist side, that is, that meant also that we uh, were men and women of one book, the Bible, and we were to be uh, those who were formed by the witness of the Word of God as Jesus Christ uh, is lifted as Savior and Lord. It seems like a uh, a motiva- uh, motivating factor in a lot of these early groups that eventually became united with Methodists was a, a very experiential spiritual conversion or moment as a key part of understanding one's Christian life. Well, there's a great emphasis, too, on, on spreading scriptural holiness, which was the theme, the outcome of the Christian life. I see. That, okay. that was the manifestation of the uh, new age of God's Spirit on earth through the preaching of the gospel that was coming. So, so it's a combination of experience, but then also a deep commitment to Scripture and the teachings of holiness in Scripture, kind of that combination. Right. Maybe you can walk us a little bit through the series of events that happened in the 1950s and 60s that led to the UMC's formation? The union that occurred in 68 began in about, the discussions for it began about six or eight years earlier, at least, boards from the two denominations. And I was a, a witness to that at that time as I was preparing for my own ordination. That is an interesting period in uh, American church history because the uh, Southern uh, Presbyterian, what was formerly called the Southern Presbyterian Church and the Northern Presbyterian Church, united in 1979, I believe it was. It might have been 78. I know that because I was the first, I had just finished seminary and, and had, was being ordained in the Presbyterian system, and mm-hmm. I was the first person ordained after that union took place. So I had that distinction of the, of the new United Presbyterian Church. So that happens in 78. You united Southern and Northern Methodism in 68. So there's that in the 60s and 70s, the churches that had split formally over the issues of especially slavery, states' rights, were coming together. For Methodists, that union came about in 39, was when the Northern and Southern... Oh, Methodist is that right? Okay. Methodist Protestants came together. So their history uh, was uh, divided back in 1844, 1845, when the North-South split occurred in Methodism oh, in the pre-Civil War period over the uh, issue of possessing slaves on the part of uh, Bishop Andrew in Georgia and so on, which led to uh, eventually a rupture there. But if occasionally, I mean, eventually, um, the uh, three-way union that occurred included the Methodist Protestants as well, which had come out of the Methodist Episcopal Church earlier due to their disagreement with Francis Asbury over the office of bishop as the 
proper title of a Protestant denomination. They wanted presidents of the church comparable to presidents in the United States. So that led to a, a third branch of the Methodist movement in the 19th century and early 20th century. So in 39, you finally had a three-way meeting in Kansas City of those three groups, North, South, and the Methodist Protestant, who uh, accepted the title of bishops and uh, the uh, basic polity that that Methodists had uh, to be theirs as well. So they had a, a history from 39 to 68 as simply the Methodist Church as a result of that three-way union. And we had our history in the EUB from 46 with the two-way union of the United Brethren and the Evangelicals until 68 when the union with Methodism occurred. And the united side of that reflects the yeah, Evangelical United Brethren, uh, half of that union. Now, contemporary Methodism, uh, from what I understand, has a, has a uh, you're connected globally. You're not just a, un- a church of the United States. You're a worldwide church. Is that a correct understanding? Exactly. Operating on all continents throughout the world. It was mostly in the 19th century from the American side that mission, the mission board was formed. It went around the world with its work. Sometimes it was it was a result of spontaneous initiatives, others through planned uh, structure from conferences and from mission boards. Largely the latter is what prevailed. And I think this is one of the things that's led to some uh, struggles in the church because the uh, the church overseas tends to be more conservative than the church in the United States. Is that a fair thing to say? That is particularly the position of the uh, the churches in Africa are much more committed to a biblical, a higher view of biblical authority as guides their church that uh, has been influential in their church life. And I think they brought that, and it's been a high position in our church historically, too, in, in the north of, uh, northern hemisphere, and it is in uh, the global north as well in our earlier history. But they have, uh, they have held the torch for that, I would say, in recent years. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. I recently spoke with David Kern from Libromania. David, you've had a few episodes so far of uh, Libromania. What's been your favorite? You know, I've talked to three writers who are young adult writers. I guess they consider themselves middle grade. That's Jonathan Rogers, Douglas McKelvey, and Sam Smith, S.D. Smith. But I really enjoyed that conversation because we were able to talk about, you know, what do they see as their their calling, as their vocation as writers, especially writers who are writing for children. To know that there are so many young people out there who are going to be turning to you for pleasure, but also for inspiration and that you're going to be such a big part of their lives. There's a lot of anxiety that goes into that. And so discussing that and their process and their vocation was was really exciting and really fun. For more information, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? 
Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. So I want to kind of jump back to this particular conference that's happening right now. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about this conference. I guess it's every four years. Um, but what type of things are usually determined when, when it's being held? It's met, it meets every four years as the general conference of the United Methodist Church. There are five jurisdictional conferences in the United States, uh, which are secondary to them, and they are for the purpose of electing bishops who serve the church in the various jurisdictions of the church. This has been a special general conference called for a special purpose in particular, dealing with the issues that have been brought before it. So it, uh, is, not, uh, it is not an irregularly scheduled one that will be coming in another year. One of the things I, I was wondering, have people, uh, you know, one of the things that's been interesting about Methodist history is it's, uh, it's, you, you did mention the, the grounding in scripture, but it does seem it has an, an initial powerful experience of some sort of spiritual experience. Is that something that's maybe getting the Methodist, uh, making some confusion in Methodism right now? Because I do know a lot of the personal testimonies coming out of the LGBT community are grounded in people's personal experience of how they experience themselves, how they experience their gender, how they experience God. Is, is it fair to say that this is uh, some of the confusion in Methodism now where their ultimate authority lies? But I would say that the United Methodists have been committed to officially a position of uh, the Scripture as the foundation of our authority, and uh, it is also understood often in terms of the secondary witness of uh, tradition, experience, and reason. But uh, experience is not the origin of our authority, but rather it confirms our engagement with the Word of God as revealed in Scripture and by the inspiration of the Spirit. It becomes not just that we believe that Christ died for us, but that He lives in and through us through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And that has its experiential dimensions. It means that's the basis for our ability to have personal fellowship with Christ and through the Spirit and with our fellow believers. That has always been an important emphasis, but within that order of priority, to put experience before any uh, before the first, or apart from scriptures and the witness to Christ as the Word of God and to the authority of the Spirit to bear witness to Him for our life of holiness and for our service to the world is uh, to depart from what we consider the core of our mission. Yeah, so I think that's referred to often as a three-legged stool of authority in, in uh, Methodism. Is that a where you have uh, Scripture, experience, and reason all working together? I would say that we stand as part of a Christian community that has its origins in apostolic Christianity. And it's been the witness of the church fathers, the apostles, the, the traditions of the 
witness to that faith that continued down through history, especially as being formed in the great uh, ecumenical creeds of the early church. Okay, so it's a four, four-legged stool. Those are ways of giving confirmation to the authority of revelation we have in the Scripture that the church has acknowledged. Okay, so I correct, I, I correct myself, because yeah, you're reminding me of that. It's a four-legged stool that all work together, but uh, in your view, it's Scripture that's the really strong leg or the foundational leg of that. Well, John Wesley once said, uh, I am a man of one book, uh, homo unius libri, and uh, by that he meant the Bible. And that was the authority that we relied upon in the Evangelical United Brethren tradition as well. And our confession of faith is one of the two standards of United Methodist doctrine today alongside the Articles of Religion that John Wesley prepared for the early Methodists. Talking about various Christian traditions, and these are words that I personally have not always understood exactly what is meant when they're said. But can you talk a little bit about what Wesleyism is? Yeah, is there a difference between Wesleyism and Methodism? Because those are those terms just synonymous? Wesleyan as an adjective refers to well, it could be refers to, it could be referring to one who follows the theology of John Wesley as he lived it out in his ministry. There is Wesleyan theology, which is that theology that has been formulated based upon his life and ministry. And uh, that has to do with uh, his emphasis upon salvation through faith, as declared in the scriptural revelation of Christ, uh, as appropriated through justification and sanctification. And even unto the fulfillment of the gift of the Spirit and the sanctifying life, which he called Christian perfection. If you are a Methodist, does it necessarily follow that you follow Wesleyan theology? Well, that refers to the, the theological tradition to which we adhere, but it also refers to a living faith that uh, needs to be more than simply what is assented to by the written statement of belief or confession, but also what we are living out. And uh, that uh, we need to say this, I think, that Wesley, the Methodism began, or the Wesleyan movement, if we refer to that as a larger movement of his thought, in the context of revival, of bringing new life to existing church structures, namely first within the Church of England, Anglicanism, and then impacting also other traditions, such as Albright with the Lutheran tradition, and Otterbein and Bain with the Reformed and Anabaptist traditions, all those traditions were being touched and influenced by a movement which had its roots really in Germany before Methodism called Pietism. Uh, that was an attempt to, uh, or a movement that brought about renewal within the churches of the Reformation after a long period of their decline and breaking down into inner divisions that occurred after the Reformation. A renewal of the original vision of the Reformers that occurred in the late 1600s, 17th century, just predating Methodism. So when that began in Lutheranism and then the Reformed churches of the European continent, it was just a generation or so before Methodism began in England. And Wesley was touched by those earlier movements of renewal that occurred on the continent within Christendom, as it was called, the model of Christianity of that day, that would bring a new personal understanding of Christianity to the lives of people who lived outside the confines of that older state church form of Christianity. So it was inherently a global movement. That gets into the area of interest of my, uh, that I have from the, the research I've just completed on the early history of the 
globalizing movement of Methodism. Do you want to talk briefly about kind of the scope of what your research looked at? The global aspect, it really is, is rooted there. It's all long been acknowledged that John Wesley was touched by the Moravians in his initial movement toward faith uh, after he had been educated at Oxford and he uh, had received his ordination. He'd been reading spiritual writers, and then he encountered the living witness of these uh, uh, German Christians who were from the Pietist rule that I mentioned in Europe. Uh, that began uh, with the Moravians, an encounter that uh, took place among the Moravians. And he meets the leaders of this uh, Moravian renewal movement that were leading this refugee group and uh, learns of their teaching of the personal belief and personal faith in Christ, resulting in the new birth experience of regeneration, new life in Christ through the uh, witness of the Spirit. A message of the new birth was not taught in the Anglican Church. It was not known to Wesley in his Oxford training. It had come through the witness of first the Reformation, but also into the pious renewal on the continent of Europe. Thousands of children in a country called Silesia that had been devastated by the struggles between the warring religious parties were surviving in the difficulties of a wilderness without their families, without their churches that had been removed and destroyed, and uh, they began uh, praying and believing that God would bring about a new future for them and for their families. This was utterly astounding to the elders who observed them, because no one else had any hope, because the churches were gone, uh, that is, those that had been a part of the Reformation heritage. Then there was this huge uh, church of refugees established, pastored by a man by the name of Johann Steinmetz. And uh, he had 70,000 people in his emergency parish of refugees that he preached to. Preachers came and helped him who were knowledgeable in all the languages of that surrounding area because the refugees were uh, Polish, they were uh, German-speaking, they were uh, Hungarian, uh, they were uh, Czech. And so uh, it was like a Pentecost environment. And uh, I found it fascinating that that was the beginning, in many ways, of the revival that later found its way into Methodism in England through Wesley. So Methodism, in that regard, has a deeply international beginning. Exactly. And, and, he, and the, fact, the fact that he, he hears this, uh, not from his own Anglican people primarily at that time, but from a, an awakening that was occurring in Eastern Europe, among a people of a different language, and that it had originated not among theologians, but from the message that uh, was revealed through children. To be a completed Christian means to be as a child. Well, what a cool thing to get to spend a couple years really diving into and pulling together, because it sounds like it's a history that not everyone knows and not everyone has been able to have the chance to do a deep dive in. So thank you so much for sharing about yeah, what you've been working on with your sabbatical project. Oh, you're welcome. Just as we wrap this conversation, I want to remind everyone that if you have feedback about some of the stuff that we discussed today, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also go on Twitter and we you can find us there at CT Podcasts. I want to also remind everyone that if you want to support this show, you can do so by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine. Our March issue is now available for all subscribers. 
Mark, I know you and I like to talk about different articles that we found moving or compelling. I don't know if there was a particular one that you wanted to share about today. Well, we did have an interesting piece called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus. It's about the growing number of Jewish Christians who are trying to recover their distinctive religious heritage. Now, what are called Messianic Jews have been around for some decades now, but apparently there's new efforts to bring the different groups together and groups that haven't been officially recognized or small parts of other denominations. It's basically a story about how they're trying to understand themselves as uh, a unique movement in the Christian church. So I've done a tremendous amount of uh, interfaith dialogue between Jews and Christians. So this story like that is kind of interesting to see how that takes shape in the Christian context. All right. So if you want to read it in our print edition, it's called, again, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus. A growing number of Jewish Christians are recovering their distinctive religious heritage. And you should read the print edition because it looks really beautiful. We have some cool artwork for it. Um, but it's also available online for subscribers as well. And you can get a copy of our March issue or read our March issue online. At, if you become a subscriber, that's orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and we get to hear what has brought everyone on the show joy in the past week. Go ahead, Mark. I like to share things that I read that bring me joy. I'm, I, I'm a fan of James Lee Burke. He's a writer who bases his writings in Louisiana, Texas. Uh, he has a series called, uh, which features the detective uh, Dave Robichaux. I'm in the third book of that series, Black Cherry Blues. And what I love about them, well, first of all, he's an interesting character in that he's a, I, I don't know if you'd call him a devout Roman Catholic, but he attends mass regularly. Uh, he obviously believes in God. Uh, he's a broken person, so he's constantly doing things that are foolish. <laughs> but also he's a recovering alcoholic. So he's just kind of an interesting character to follow who who makes this the interesting. Well, the most interesting part about it is James Lee Burke's ability to describe scenes. And he describes some scenes in New Orleans that I've been to and other places. And he's just spot on in terms of using language to evoke that. So that's one, one of the reasons I read him is to learn the craft of uh, description. Because someday I hope to write a novel and I will have to be able to do that well if I'm going to do it. All right. In the meantime, you write a newsletter. Call the Galley Report, which can be subscribed to at christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. That's G-A-L-L-I, which I link to stories and comment on them. All right. Dr. O'Malley? Well, I've been greatly blessed by my class I just finished at, at the seminary. and. Uh, the students there have uh, enabled me to see more clearly many of the things that uh, I've been trying to teach them over the years they have uh, brought to, to life in the way they've learned and expressed it and are living it out in their ministries. And seeing that replicated in their ministries makes it uh, very, very worthwhile. Do you have a website or a book that you want to um, suggest to people that they follow up? The title of the manuscript that I have that's being published would be the most recent thing that I would mention, I think. Yeah, it is the origin of the Wesley Theological Vision for Christian Globalization and the Pursuit of Pentecost and Early Pietist Revivalism. Thank you. No problem. My precious moment was a chance to go to Philadelphia last weekend and see some college friends that I have stayed in touch with pretty closely but hadn't seen with in 
one of them I hadn't seen with maybe like in two years, a year and a half. And it's amazing, once again, how just the relationships that you form in college can really do a lot in terms of making you feel connected with someone um, when you go back to them, even if you see them every other year or something like that. And I feel really grateful for just the time I got to spend with people. I think your generation does that. You aren't in the generation previous to yours, which what they call Generation X. Mm -hmm. Do that better. My daughter and my son keep better touch with people he knew in college Hmm. than I do or that my (laughs) wife has done. All right. (laughs) For some reason, that wasn't, uh, that didn't stick. Maybe there's a couple people, but not, not like they, not like they do. You don't live in California or in Santa Cruz anymore. So maybe. That's part of it. And part of it, we, we, we got to know each other before the age of Facebook and email when it was a lot, when it's a lot easier to stay in touch. So sometimes we're, you were discovering people we haven't talked to in decades on those mediums, but not staying in touch for 30 years, though. Yeah, actually, I mean, some of us are keep in touch over social media, but it's more the ability to just talk to each other on the phone, at least for me, that sustained actually feeling like close to them as opposed to just knowing what they're up to. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, Richard Clark. The music is by Sweeps. I reminded you all last week. I will remind you all again. We have transcripts of our conversations. You can find all of the transcripts from last week to hopefully as long as the show goes at christianitytoday.com slash ct slash podcast slash quick to listen and quick to listen has hyphens in the middle of it. And yeah, we put their transcripts in there. I hope that those can resource and help you all out. Everyone who has been asking for all of those. Also, if you have things that have happened in your life that show off the good, true and beautiful of the church, we invite you to share those with us. You can do that by calling us at 630-384-7333 and leaving a message containing what you're seeing in the world. You can also record a one to two minute voice memo and email it to us at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Thanks everyone who subscribes to the magazine. Again, that's orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you everyone also who has rate and reviewed the show. You guys can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, which is something that's really awesome. All right. Talk to you later. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.